The following message is from North Place Church. We hope the next few moments will allow you to experience Christ, community, and compassion. For more about North Place Church, find us online at northplacechurch.com. If you are um, joining us, we are in the third week of a study through the book of Philippians, and uh, we know that as Paul writes what we're reading, he is imprisoned in Rome uh, for his faith and facing a potential execution. All the while, while in prison, he is modeling this unexplainable sense of joy. He writes about it. He talks about it. This kind of joy that all of us long for. It's a peace and fulfillment that the human race desires in the deepest part of our being. But how can you live in that kind of joy in all times, in all seasons? And from our study over the last couple of weeks of chapter 1, this is what Paul has shown us. The key to relentless joy is a selfless life, a servant heart that is surrendered to the sovereign control of God. You will never find lasting joy in a self-centered, self-serving life. I've often heard it expressed this way, joy, J-O-Y, could stand for Jesus others, and then yourself. Prioritize your life in that way, being selfless, a servant of Jesus, a servant of others, and then put yourself at the end of the deal. Then you can begin to understand what lasting joy is. If you can't seem to get going on your journey to joy, you need to find somebody to serve. That's what North Place did on Friday night as we conducted our special needs prom, um, we, our theme that night, at least in my heart, was invite the uninvited. It's a group of kids that never get invited to the regular prom because of their disabilities, whether physically or mentally. And so we decided to put on an event. Uh, the Garland ISD had done something for the high schoolers in the special education department in Garland, uh, but it, it, it was small. They had never had any more than 70 people attend the event. And they asked us to come take it over and sponsor it, and, and we did. Uh, it was an awesome night. Um, uh, we had um, our, the special needs kids were picked up at the school uh, in limos. Uh, and they had never ridden in limos in their life. And they were taken over to, many of them had never been in a limo, they were taken over to a red carpet where they were dropped off. And our teenagers were lined up at the red carpet. And when a young man, whether in a wheelchair or whatever his physical or her physical condition was, if a young man got out, one of the teenagers from our church escorted them down the red carpet, became their date for the night. Uh, If it was a young lady, one of our young men did the same thing. Uh, When one of the limos pulled up, uh, the, um, uh, the group in the limo said, can we make another lap? Uh, so, so the limo driver said, why not? You know, so, so they went out and came back and, and made another lap. And then they got out and the cameras were flashing. The paparazzi was there. The theme was Hollywood lights. Uh, our, our adult workers work behind the scenes. I can't tell you how many Garland ISD administrators, and you will see some of them in just a moment in a video, and how many parents came to me in tears and said, I can't tell you how special this has made our family feel. And I had multiple ones. One man said it, the others echoed it. That you, you, As a church pastor, you guys could preach a lot of sermons and do a lot of things, but nothing has shown us that you really believe what you say you believe more than an event like this. And we just say thank you. Um, invite the uninvited. You want to bring joy? Do something like this. Hey guys, I just wanted to say we're in the middle of the Hollywood Lights special needs prom. 
Many of these families come from low income, plus the challenges of their special needs child. And you guys have made this possible. The joy that's going on in behind me in the building is indescribable. On behalf of all the kids that can't say thank you and all of our staff and our parents, thank you so much. This dance has meant so much to my son. He's been talking about it and looking forward to it and talks about it every day. And this year, there have been so many other kids here to help him and to help them. It's just, it just means a lot to us. Thank you as a congregation for supporting this, serving here, and loving on these families. Thank you so much, North Place Church. Thank you, North Place. Thank you so much, North Place, for doing this for our kids. The beginning of chapter 2, when Paul writes, is actually the continuation of a thought from chapter 1. And let me just kind of give you a little teaching point here. When you read the Bible and you come to chapter 2, let's say, and you ended chapter 1 yesterday and you just pick up your reading in chapter 2, we often forget that those chapter divisions were not originally written in the letter. They were put there by translators so we could find our way around the Bible. Um, but we often let those chapter divisions cause us to lose content because the content it was the thoughts of chapter 2 were connected to what was said in chapter 1. And I've always told you, chapter 2 begins this way, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. I've always said, when you see a therefore, you've got to figure out what it's there for. And the point here is that what I'm about to say is connecting to what I previously said, which happens to be in the latter part of chapter 1. So let me read it the way Paul was intending for us to hear it. Philippians 1.27, in order to grasp what he's trying to say at the beginning of chapter 2. And notice when I read how obvious it is that Paul is making a call to this church for unity. He uses the words like same and like-mindedness and united and one over and over again. It says in verse 27 of chapter 1, whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Here's what Paul is saying. Joy thrives in unity. It is weakened in strife. The quickest and most common way people take detours in their journey toward joy is through relational strife. 
If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember from our introduction to the book, one of the reasons that Paul wrote the letter is to address the relational conflict among two leaders in Philippi that is causing folks to choose sides and disrupting the unity in the church at Philippi. In the latter part of chapter 1 and in the first part of chapter 2, Paul gives them a challenge. Guard the unity and therefore protect your joy. If you guard the corporate unity in your relationships within the church, it will protect the joy within your life. If you lose that, there's friction there, you're going to lose personal joy. But he doesn't just leave them with this difficult challenge. He gives them a simple explanation of how to guard church unity and how to protect personal joy. It's simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Here's what he says, Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of of others. And now in the remaining 25 verses, Paul takes that amazing picture of a selfless life, a servant heart surrendered to God. He takes that amazing picture and says, this is the this is what you're going to have to have to live in relationship. This is what you're going to have to have to live a life of joy. And then he spends the remainder of the chapter and uses three people as models of that kind of relationship. The first one is Jesus, and then he briefly at the end talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus. They Model that kind of relationship. Look at verse 5, and before we read it, remember the intent of these statements is to show us how to protect personal joy by guarding unity in our relationships. And those relationships are relationships that you have among Christians. This stuff's not going to work between you and somebody that's not a Christian. What he's talking about here is specifically dealing with strife and quarrel among two people or groups of people that have the same spirit dwelling on the inside side of them. Philippians 2.5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6 through 11, he shows us what that mindset in our life should look like. But before we read it, I want you to know these verses, verse 6 through 11, are some of the most powerful verses in the Bible to me. They're some of the most convicting verses in the Bible to me. And I love how Pastor Ray Stedman describes verse 6 through 11. This is what he said. Now we come to what I think is the most breathtaking passage in all of Scripture. This passage on the glorification of our Lord Jesus is the Mount Everest among the mountain peaks of revelation concerning the person of Christ. The amazing story of how the eternal Son of God stepped out of eternity into time and became a man as God intended man to be. These few short verses in the simple little letter capture some of the most amazing truths that have ever confronted the minds of men. And this is the passage he was describing. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is what it looks like. Who in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human, human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. And notice the emphasis, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is an amazing passage, but I think the temptation, because it stands alone so powerfully, the temptation for us is to preach a sermon on it, pull out the principles, and not see it in its context. To do a devotion on it, because so many devotional writers have used that as a daily devotional, and we see the truth in that passage, but we don't see it against the backdrop of why Paul wrote it. There is a backstory. Remember, there are two leaders who are fighting among themselves, People in the church in Philippi are picking sides and it's about to destroy the unity of the church. And Paul has already made it clear previously in the letter that the secret of maintaining unity is in personal humility. And wherever there is contentiousness, it reveals the presence of pride. Pride in an individual life, a family, a church, a government, a nation will eventually destroy it. Pride destroys. It pits one person against another. It perpetuates conflicts. It breaks up marriages and destroys relationships of every kind. When people are quarreling, the path to peace is in seeking humility rather than trying to assess the argument, weigh the pros and the cons, and try to marry some kind of compromise. Because when you do that, You wind up uh, having these subjective values. This one's important subjectively to this one. This one's important subjectively to that one. There is no way to objectively determine. And so we wind up not being fair. And it's impossible to come to a conclusion. The way to settle an argument is to seek humility on each party. The question comes to mind, well, how do you do that? When tempers are hot, when passions are high, when patience is strained, how do you get people to think about a humble attitude? How do you stop the rising tide of pride in the human heart? How do you stop the urge to defend yourself and our stubborn insistence on what we call our rights that we demand? The answer is in this beautiful description of Jesus in these few verses between verse 6 And verse 11, and let me again say what might sound pretty narrow, but I'll stick to my guns on this. This picture, this kind of resolution to strife in relationships cannot happen where the Spirit of Christ does not dwell. This can only happen where the Spirit of Christ is alive and well in the heart of a person, when they are Christ followers. When non-Christians quarrel... All that is possible is compromise. And you know what compromise is? Compromise is a way to perpetuate pride on an agreed upon level. Think about it. We call it saving face. In compromise, each party gets enough of what they want so that they agree to overlook what they lost in the deal. That is the most you can expect from those where the Spirit of Christ does not dwell. But with Christians, it is possible to have more than compromise. We can have genuine peace. And too many times as Christ followers, we settle for compromise, which is nothing more than what the best the world has to give us to attain a settlement in disagreements. Christians can achieve peace, not just a truce or a cold war or agreed upon settlement, but peace, which is a mutual sharing in wrongdoing and mutual and sharing is the key word each person in the conflict has to acknowledge they have somehow contributed to the strife and they have to bury it in in, in forgiveness 
The result of that kind of resolution when it's born out of humility is a deeper relationship than before. And God actually takes the strife when it's done in his spirit and reworks it to make those people even closer than they are. He turns what was potentially negative around for his good. The secret to this unity, this kind of unity, is the mindset or the disposition that Jesus had. And Paul speaks about it in verse 5 and shows what it looks like in verse number 6. The King James Version of verse 5 says this, Let this mind be in you. That was in Christ Jesus. And keep your emphasis on the words in you. He doesn't say imitate Christ. It's a mistake that Christians make thinking they're only supposed to imitate the life of Christ. If that's the best we can do, it's a cheap substitute. The Christian life is more than imitating Christ or following his example or trying in human self-effort to be like him. Paul says, let this mind be in you. It is in you. He is in you. It's more than some external religious costume that we try to put on. Living the Christ life is the overflow flow of Christ living out of us through us because of the internal transformation of our heart and then in those verses Jesus models for us verse 6 through 11 how to approach this level of the kind of person that we need to be this this mindedness or this disposition and he did it I think he did it in three steps let me show you what he did the first step he took was he he gave up his right to his rights And you could say he gave up the right to be right. But he gave up the right to his rights. He didn't give up his rights. He gave up his rights to enjoy those rights. And he had a lot of rights. Paul says that he existed in the form of God. He was equal with God. But he laid those rights aside. For those of you that happen to be reading out of the New American Standard Bible, if you look at verse 7, it says, but he emptied Himself, And if you look at the footnote uh, in the New American Standard Bible of the words emptied himself, it literally said he gave up the right to his divine rights. He laid aside his divine privileges. He gave up the rights to his divine rights. And man, he had divine rights. If you go back to John chapter number 1, John says this about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that has been made. In other words, there is not a statement that confirms the full deity of Jesus Christ any more than that. And in Colossians, Paul says, For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells. And the writer of Hebrews begins that great letter with a similar expression when he says that Jesus is the express image of the substance of God and he bore the very stamp of God's nature on his being and he finishes that by saying he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's some power. What's holding you together today? Well, you would say skin. But what's holding your skin together? Because there's a, there are uh, atoms inside of you being held together. Uh, hard to imagine that the centrifugal force of, of electrons rotating around the nucleus of the atoms. And there are so many of them happening. What is holding you together? The whole universe, your body, all of creation is held together by the power of the words of his mouth. He is God. He owns it all. He is in control of it. He had rights. And he laid them aside. Having all of this, he did not count all these things to be held on to at all cost. 
He emptied himself. He did not empty himself of his deity. He remained God, but he emptied himself of the right to lay hold of the privileges that deity brings. He stepped out of eternity into humanity. You can't empty yourself of your humanity. He didn't empty himself of his deity. He remained divine, but he did not come to us. The reason he laid those privileges aside, he did not come to us to manifest what God was like. He came to us to show us what man ought to be when God takes up full residence in his heart he did not give up his rights as God he gave up his rights to enjoy his rights as God in other words he didn't insist on his rights he laid those rights aside he emptied himself and that's where humility begins the willingness to lay aside the right to enjoy your rights and it wasn't just a thought actions followed those thoughts by the scripture saying he emptied himself and it gives you the image of somebody taking a bucket and literally pouring it out and shaking it until the last drop is gone he poured himself out he had every right to enjoy his rights as God but he emptied those out and you say, well, pastor, what about the times he walked on water? What about the time he opened the blinded eye and he raised the dead? Wasn't he manifesting his divine nature then? And when I understand the scripture, no, he wasn't. He laid aside his divine privileges. The Bible says in the book of Acts that Jesus was a man from Nazareth anointed by the Holy Spirit, which says to me that Jesus performed the miraculous things he did in his flesh, anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit. He did not come to behave as God he came to show us how God could act through a man to show us how God intended man to be to show us the secret of a man's life is complete dependence upon an indwelling God he became a man and never once in 33 years did he take a step of his life on earth or utter a word or perform an act of any kind in his own inherent deity but in total surrender and dependence to the indwelling father and he said so himself he said the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father do but if that's what he did he gave up his right to his rights that's not enough That's only the first step. If all Jesus was is demonstrate what a man ought to be and become an example for us, that doesn't change us. I I love music. I love musicians. I'm no good at it. But I have this great appreciation for people who are. And sometimes when I go listen to people play a guitar or piano, it sounds like they got 25 fingers being able to make all of that noise. And I can immerse myself in their skill all I want to, and I'm never going to become a good musician watching their good example. Matter of fact, I get depressed. I start out enjoying it and then I realize how bad I really am. I get depressed. And if all Jesus would have done was be a good example, it would have been more discouraging than anything else. But he didn't stop at the first step. He didn't stop at laying aside the right to enjoy his divine rights. He did something else. Verse 8 says, And being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. After he surrendered his rights to his rights, 
He humbled himself. He not only gave up the right to enjoy his rights, he assumed all the indignity, the injury, the hurt, all the rejection the unbelieving world was going to put on him without complaint. And that's the key, without complaint. He was obedient to death, Scripture says. He's the only man who ever lived that didn't have to die, and yet he voluntarily chose to die. No one took his life. He gave it. He became obedient, Scripture says, to death. He lived under a shadow all his life. He was misunderstood and opposed by loved ones all the days of his boyhood. He lived under the constant insinuation that he was an illegitimate child. When he came to the end of his ministry, he was deserted by his friends and betrayed by his own disciples and spat upon and handed over for Roman scourging. And the crowning indignity of all came when he was stripped naked and hung on a cross to die as a common criminal, as an outcast of society. And that's why Paul ends verse 8 with that exclamation, even death on a cross. Remember that. The next time you feel in a strife-filled moment, in an argument with another person who is a believer, the next time you feel that self-assertiveness rise in you or you're tempted to withdraw and break fellowship from the church or other believers, remember that picture of emptying himself. Remember that picture of humility. He gave up the right to be right. It comes with the willingness to bear injury, to put up with insult, and to accept the cost of another person's wrongdoing. This is the place to which the Lord Jesus came. This is the starting place. It's the lowest place for him. It's the starting place for us. Death on a cross is where we belong. He went in our place. But in that process, he modeled for us an attitude, a disposition, humility. See, Jesus took the first two steps. He gave up his rights to enjoy his divine rights. And then he humbled himself. And the last step is something only God can do. You got to give up your rights to be right. You got to humble yourself. But the third thing, God exalted him. Listen, Philippians 2 9. Therefore, God exalted him. Again, therefore, because of all that you just read ahead of that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Notice. Jesus did the first two, God did the last. And the result of that is peace. If you go on and read the picture of what it looks like, I mean, you see that every knee bows and every tongue confesses and every voice unites, giving praise to Jesus. And if you want to complete that picture of what ultimate peace looks like at the end of the book, go back and read Revelation 5, where every tribe and tongue and people and nation is gathered at the throne saying this, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing because He was slain before the foundation of the world world. That is what a world of peace looks like and it results from the work of our Lord. It's all true. We ascribe to it mentally and theologically, but what does that look like in our life? Jesus gave up his right to be right. He gave up his divine rights. He, he, he humbled himself and God exalted him to a place of peace. If we, in our relationships, that's the context of this conversation. If we, in strife and quarrels within the church, if we will lay aside the right to our rights, we will humble ourselves, God will exalt us To a place of peace. If you believe it theologically. Paul is saying to the Philippians. Let it show in your relationship. 
The Philippians were divided by conflict, separating from one another. It was in that kind of situation that Paul offered these healing words, renounce your rights and humble yourself and God will exalt you to a place of peace. The kind of place that God operates in the greatest power today is when two of his kids or groups of his kids are in an argument. He says, accept the position, the mindset, the disposition of Jesus. And the inevitable result will be peace. God takes over and elevates us to a place of peace. Now, now watch how Paul closes the chapter. These are his parting words, and this is how he acknowledged Timothy lived that kind of life, that picture that Jesus just gave us. Timothy lives that life. Epaphroditus lives that life. And he's trying to tell the Philippians, these are real models that it can be done. Here's what he says. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive good news about you. I have no one else like him. Key in on that statement. I have not, there's not another human relationship in my life that is more valuable than Timothy who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Look at what he does, verse 21. He looks out for, most people look out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. And here's what he says about Epaphroditus, verse 25. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor, notice this, honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Two models of that kind of selfless, servant-hearted, surrendered life. Now, Mom, Grandma, let me say this to you on Mother's Day. I want you to make the connection of what God is saying about Mother's Day from the book of Philippians. Go back to that verse 20 where Paul says about Timothy, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but not Timothy. Timothy is a selfless servant who submitted to Jesus He guards unity in his relationships and therefore he protects joy. You want to know where Timothy got that kind of faith? You want to know how Timothy became that kind of man? Read what Paul wrote in his letter to Timothy. In the second letter Paul ever wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, in the opening lines of Paul's letter to Timothy, this is what he says in verse 5. I am reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, In your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, now lives in you also. 
You want to know how Timothy became the kind of man in Paul's ministry? That he was the most valuable asset to Paul in relationship. The most valuable asset to Paul as he expanded the kingdom of God because he modeled selflessness and servant-heartedness and Christ-likeness. You want to know how he became that man? Because the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. That's why. Because Lois was a godly woman. Eunice was a godly woman. Mom, grandma, never underestimate the power of influence. I know there are days, for those of you that are young moms, I remember coming home. Haley was so frustrated dealing with three little kids. And I'd walk through the door and she was starving for adult conversation. She just, I mean, trying to find mundane uh, meaning in all the mundane of being a mom. And I would always try to say to her what I'm trying to say to you now. Do you realize God has entrusted three destinies? in your life that could shape the world of tomorrow. Never underestimate Lois. Never underestimate Eunice that God has placed Timothys and Deborahs and the heroes of the Bible for our generation have been entrusted to your cribs and to your care and you can shape the future if this gift of being called a mom. Amen. I want you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place. I realize today that um, this is not kind of when when you say, I'm not going to say, you know what I really wish I could do? I really wish we had more time and I could say, if there's a believer, you're a believer, and there's a believer in this room that you're at odds with, you need to get together right now before you walk out of this building and make it right. And I guess I'm still going to say that. We don't have time to have an altar call where everybody just... But I'm just telling you, there is no reason when the Spirit of Christ dwells in two hearts and they take the mind of Jesus that not compromise, that's an agreed-upon perpetuation of pride. Peace, not truce, not cold war. Peace is possible when we walk humbly. I'm going to ask the prayer team if they will make themselves available today. And I realize people aren't going to run to the altar today saying, I have strife in my relationships and I need prayer. There may be somebody here though who's honest enough with God in themselves that's willing to humble themselves and say, can you pray with me? I need help in this area. But we wanted on Mother's Day to make this available for you So that we could pray with you, whether it's a relationship or if it's a physical need. Listen, friend, we had a miracle this last week. Uh, A brother called us and uh, his cancer uh, patient has been in the past and found a mass in his chest. They were concerned. Uh, When he went back in, the mass was gone. Uh, Jesus answers prayer, people. And and, and we got the church praying and and, uh, they could barely talk. They were so excited uh, about what God's doing. And I just want to provide that opportunity. Maybe you do want prayer. Listen. It's not going to be because we, we put enough effort in it and we strive in it. Let the mind be in you. It's there. If you're a believer, it's in you. Just let it out. Let Jesus... Let the Christ life be lived through you. And enjoy it not just in your relationships, but in every area of your life. Let us pray with you today if you need prayer on this Mother's Day for any area of a miracle in your life. And I just want to pray God gives you grace in your relationships. Father, will you bless and keep? Will you make your face to shine down upon these people? Will you protect them? Will you turn your countenance their direction today? And I pray, Lord, you'll give them 
peace. I pray it every Sunday, but I pray you'll give them peace. Not compromise, peace. Not a truce, not a cold war that's going to erupt the next time pride puts its ugly head into that marriage or into that parent-child relationship. But, but God, I pray for peace that we learn how to surrender our rights. That we learn how today, Lord, to humble, empty ourselves. That we learn how to let you live through us as we do the two things we can do. You exalt us. Help us as North Place Church to guard, guard unity corporately and protect personal joy. In Jesus' name, amen. The altars are open. We're ready to pray. God bless you. Thanks for listening to this message from North Place. Feel free to share or duplicate this message. If you are in the Dallas area, we would love to connect with you personally. We gather every Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.30 a.m.